Hello and welcome to episode three of The Blend Sessions with me, Theo van den Bruecke. And I'm your host for a series of conversations on culture recorded with Chivas Regal blended Scotch whiskey at their bar in East London. Each week, we bring together two creative minds to talk about how collaboration and the blending of different skills have shaped their work and been the key to their success. The discussions cover art, photography, food, fashion and literature and are an inspiring, informative look at how the creative process works in these worlds. This week's conversation on culture brings together two of the leading lights of documentary storytelling in Britain right now, Reggie Yates and Dan Davies. These two men came from very different areas of the media before using what they'd learned to create a completely new kind of journalism. Yates was a children's TV star and radio host who used his skills to step outside of his comfort zone, working with his BBC team to produce a string of award-winning, hair-raising documentaries, which saw them enter the lives of some of the world's most troubling people from long-term prisoners to Russian neo-Nazis. Dan Davies was a long-time magazine journalist who dedicated years to researching and writing about one of the most notorious criminals of our time and eventually winning the Gordon Byrne Prize for non-fiction for his book In Plain Sight. Together, the two of them and the people they collaborated with have helped reinvent the art of documentary storytelling in the UK. This conversation was hosted by Paul Crowton, the editor of The Rob Report. So sit back and enjoy Reggie Yates and Dan Davies in conversation with Shivas Regal Scotch Whiskey in episode three of The Blend Sessions. Dan, Reg, welcome. Thank you for coming. Thank you. Let's start with a really easy one. You've both had varied careers. Did you kind of envisage you would be here when you started, Dan? Did you always want to be a writer when you were...? Yeah, I think I did, really. I mean, I wanted to be a professional sportsman, but very quickly realised that I was too small and not good enough. Um, Which and sport? Then, uh, well... Rugby, football, golf. Didn't have the temperament for golf. All of them. Everything. I mean, I've pretty, I've pretty much tried everything, and I've not been good enough at any of them. So I thought that the best thing beyond that was to be able to write about sport, and that was my debut in journalism. I was very lucky that somebody gave me a break when I left school, and I worked on a sports magazine for a year before going to Liverpool University which was a choice purely made on my football team. Um, There's a theme coming here. There is a theme coming here. So I worked in sport for probably 10 years, which gave me amazing access, was the next best thing to playing sport, to be able to be up close to great sporting events, great sportsmen, meet great sportsmen and women, and you know, experience some incredible events as well. So that was, that was my start. You're surrounded by great sportsmen, and now you're here with us. And now I'm here with you. What and a dream. I, I feel honoured. Like unfit people surrounded by over. I'm the unfittest of all of them, I can assure you. You see me play football. Um, Reg, what about you? Did you, uh, you started incredibly young. Yeah. And kind of... Yeah, I, I definitely didn't come from a showbiz family. You know, I wasn't sort of... Um, I didn't have a pushy parent. My mum just wanted to get me out of the house, I think. Um, much like yourself, I'm from Holloway. We were just chatting about this. I'm from North London. And... Um, the top of my, my council estate, you could see the Arsenal Stadium. So whether I liked it or not, I was always going to be a gooner. And um, <laughs> when I was a kid, I, I thought maybe junior gunners would be the thing. I was shit football, so that, that didn't happen. And then my mum took me to scouts and literally I got to the window. This is how much of a tie I am. I got to the window and I looked in the glass and um, all these kids were sort of in a line singing a song wearing brown shorts and a yellow neckerchief, and I went, I ain't wearing that, Mum. <laughs> that was the reason I didn't join Scouts. And um, literally that same night, my mum had a mate come round, and um, I remember it clear as day, my mum was frying fish in the kitchen, like a typical African woman she is, and um, 
her friend was telling her about this drama group in Angel called uh, Anashir Theatre. And um, it was like two quid a lesson. So mum was like, all right, cool, you're going to go there. And um, when I started, it was just something to do. Mm. And I, I loved it. And I was quite lucky to, to get a job quite quickly. Uh, and from the age of eight, I, I've sort of been working. And you know, to answer your question, uh, outside of my rambling backstory, I genuinely haven't ever really had a plan, as it were, like to, to sort of say, you know, I'm going to do this and I'm going to do that. You know, Rastamouse was never in the plan. Um, it's just something that <laughs> happened. <laughs> yeah, it was never in the plan. It's just something that sort of happened along the way. And I think the, the, the fact that I've sort of been open to things that I like and things that, I, uh, that I'm engaged by, that is why my career has sort of done that. What was the moment where you thought, you know what, I think this can work, I can do this, was it? The first day, the first thing, yeah, I was eight years old. I was on the set of Desmond's and I was surrounded by people that looked like my family who were at work and were laughing all day. You know, I was surrounded by uh, people that I'd seen on TV who were, who were black and who were having fun and were getting paid. And up until that point, black people at work having fun was never part of that equation. You know, my grand was a cleaner, my grandfather was, uh, a mathematics professor by day and he was uh, a security guard by night because he was trying to build his house in Ghana. So everyone was always tired, everyone hated work, no one was happy. So to suddenly be around this group of people who were laughing and joking and telling dirty jokes and, and having a great time, I was like, okay, this is work, this is what I want work to be like for me. Dan, what about you? I mean, I think for me, the turning point I thought I can actually do this was the 1990 Open Championship at St Andrews, which is a very different environment to Desmond's, obviously. But, um, uh, yeah, very similar. Um, I was sort of meant to be up there as a sort of junior member of the team, and then the, the lead writer was taken ill, and the editor took a real punt at me and said, Look, you know, you do the main report. And I had to file this report of about 2,000 words right on the end of the tournament and write it in one go and make it clean copy. And I wrote you know, what I thought was, and I still think it's one of the best pieces I've ever written, and I was 19 at the time, and I filed it straight off, and I had so much adrenaline from that, from that sort of experience. And I was in a press centre with men, you know, in their 40s and 50s, and there was me a sort of much thinner version of myself. You know, 19 years old, big glasses, stupid haircut, um, but wrote this really great piece. And, like, the editor came to me afterwards and said, you know what? The lead writer couldn't have done any better than that. And it gave me such a boost. And I think that I've always tried to, you know, in all the magazines and the newspapers I've worked at, I've always tried to ensure that, you know, with work experience or, or people coming for internships or placements, that they get an experience that is useful. And they try, you know, I try and if possible make sure that they can get some sort of byline because somebody gave me a break and, and that moment was a real sort of turning point for me, I think. Let's get into a bit more kind of, of the detail. You've both become known and made, made your, your careers really with getting people to talk who perhaps don't want to talk or creating an environment where they feel compelled to talk perhaps or that, you know, allowing them space to share some of the things they perhaps wouldn't tell other people. How do you do that? Well, you interviewed me last week, so... Well, let, let's hear it. Well, <laughs> I, I, I try and sort of really do my research. I mean, I, I did interview Reggie last week, you know, purely coincidentally for a, for a profile for men's health. And I just think it's really important to do your research. I spent, I watched probably nine hours of Reggie's yeah, documentaries. I know, so, they're great. And so I, you know, they're great. And, um, you know, read probably 100 pages of cuts. And 
spent a long time sort of thinking about the questions of what I wanted to find out about. Because what I'm really interested in is, is how your career has, has sort of taken all these twists and turns, but now has arrived in this place where you're making really interesting films. And, you know, there are not many people, I don't think, you know, without wanting to blow smoke up Reggie, who have sort of had that transition into different things. So I think preparation is really important. Having, trying to develop some sort of rapport. I think the other thing is to remember to keep quiet. Um, is a really good a good trick. You know, sometimes it's tempting to try and fill silence with a question or by trying to tease something out of somebody. But actually, the human nature means that, you know, if you're disciplined enough to be quiet, the chances are they'll probably fill that silence and you'll get something yeah. really revealing out yeah. of it. So true. Uh, just to add on to that, I think the idea of, of being quiet is... Um, Something that I've had to learn the hard way because <laughs> when you go from like a ten, ten years on, on radio where silence is death yeah. uh, <laughs> to uh, making uh, factual films, being able to have the confidence to to listen and allow things to, to hang is is really difficult, um, particularly when the camera's rolling and you're having quite an intense conversation about something quite sensitive. To be able to allow that person to to sort of go into themselves and know that. It's okay, and, you know. Worst case, you can edit around it, but to have those moments of stillness and to also have those moments where you are just listening and also really taking on board what is being said to you and being willing to to have a conversation as opposed to an interview, I think that's what makes for better content. I think that's a really good point. Conversation, if, if it feels conversational, yeah, it's going to be so much better rather than the sort of question answer question answer that sort of very formal rules of engagement. If you can get into a conversation, and you're not, you know, you're not going to establish necessarily rapport with everybody, but you know, I think it's, imp I think it's really important that the person you're speaking to knows that you've put in the work to try and sort of get under the surface of what they do or to understand what they're about. You almost start at the level of respect. Yeah, I think so. I mean, absolutely. If you just sort of breeze in and you haven't done your research, and it's clear to the person you're speaking to that you don't really know what you're talking about and you're winging it, then I don't think you're going to get a great result. Um, so. You know, I mean, I think that as well, you know, I said about staying silent. I mean, often I listen back to, to tapes of interviews or I'm transcribing, I'm thinking, God, why didn't I just shut up there, you know, and just let them finish that point. But it is really important. And, you know, I've spoken to, you know, to really sort of legendary interviewers like Lynn Barber, and she always says, says the same thing, you know, just be quiet, let them say what they're going to say. And, you know, more often than not, you'll get gold. Mm. So desperate not to say anything. I've always thought, because I'm, I do a similar thing, not half as well, but we always have the last laugh, and as print journalists, there's a number of us here, because we get to edit what happened. So we can always get the last word in. But I've been so impressed when I watch your documentaries, Reg, because obviously you don't get that chance. You don't get to tap the guy on the shoulder and say, can we do that again? I messed up. Or I really wanted to say this. Or, yeah. In a way, there's a more honest approach with TV documentaries. It's, it's um, a, yeah, a well, raw you know, experience. Dan touched on this, this idea of, um, of journalism, what it takes to be a good journalist. Um, and I'm adamant that I'm not a journalist and I don't ever want to be and I never present myself as being one because I sort of see myself as the, uh, the mouthpiece for the audience in these films. You know, the, the, the man on the sofa is, is the role, if ever there was one that I take because the questions that I ask aren't from a place of theses. They're from a place of genuine interest. And I'm not sort of uh, going into any environment to, um, 
to dictate to someone what I feel about an issue. It's to actually get to know them and discover through them the issue itself. Mm. And that is why I think they resonate because at the core of all of the films that, that I've made in, in Factual, you know, we were speaking about the inside of the, the, the jail film in, in the Texas jail. Everybody has stopped me and, and everyone that has stopped me about that has spoken about Alex specifically, which is one character I met on my first night there who was coming in for his first night. And through Alex, we were able to really uh, have conversation, real genuine conversation about mental health and about this idea of rehabilitation versus uh, hospitalization and, and you know, like whether or not these men should be in jail or whether they should be in hospital. And it happened quite organically and quite naturally and you can't plan for that kind of thing. So I think uh, it will always be conversational. The reason that I, I believe that I could do what I'm now doing in factual is because of the room and no one else. Because as a teenager, you know, I was allowed to, to watch with my parents these docs. I think it was weird weekends at that point. And this was someone who was in his early 30s wearing silly Hawaiian shirts going out and just putting himself in environments where he wouldn't care if he was the butt of the joke. But the most important thing was that he would get to the core of the, the issue at hand, uh, be it, you know, porn stars in America and who those people fundamentally were and, and whatever other subject matter he tackled. It made me look at factual in a very different way, especially the role that the person fronting the films takes. How do you decide what to focus on with your films? I mean, you've covered some really quite powerful subjects. Is this you making that choice, or you work with a producer, collaborator? How, how oh, does to it be work? really transparent to begin with, no, wasn't my choice. Because obviously, you know, when you're starting out in a new lane and you're a novice at, at Factual, you kind of do what you're told and you just try and do your best with what you're given. Uh, but now uh, I, I produce the, the, the films that I present, which is great. So I'm not just on camera, I'm in the edit and, and I, you know, I, I write the scripts or at least I rewrite the scripts that my director might write for the voiceover. And increasingly, I'm not just producing and presenting, I'm uh, partnering with channels and we are now making the films that I want to make, at least going into the new year. So as I've just finished shooting stuff that uh, will go out in the first quarter of next year, the rest of the year will be projects that are made with my company and that are made on subject matters that I really, really, really care about and that I've, I've wanted to do for years. So one of the first things that, um, that we've already started exploring doing is a film about multiculturalism and identity. For instance, you know, uh, there was, it was just a weird sort of essay type page that I've written and it popped into my head, the sentence was uh, mixed Britain and the brown generation off the back of a, a conversation that I had with a friend of mine who was telling me about a game that she plays at the school gates uh, with the other parents and that's um, child roulette because there are so many beige <laughs> children now, it's impossible to know what parents go with what child. Facts, right? Facts. So we are in a, in, in a unique time where multiculturalism and identity are issues that so many parents are having to deal with, but nobody's talking about it. For instance, a friend of mine, he is, a, in fact, one of his very close friends are here. We had a really honest conversation about this. He is a Trinidadian man. He's an annoyingly handsome man at that, uh, quite, quite uh, sort of chocolate skinned, and his wife is the same. She's a mixed race lady, beautiful brown skin, and their children are your complexion. And for him, uh, as a... <laughs> In talking to him about that, and talking to him about that, and what that stirs up within him as a man and as a father, you know, obviously you're going to love your kid no matter what. 
But when your child doesn't look like you and your child has that option to not identify as a black man, what does that say to you and how does that make you feel? And also when people are looking at you like you're not pushing your own child in your pram, how do you feel about that? And that isn't something that's unique to him and his experience. That is something that is happening across this country, particularly in the big cities. So I'm really interested in identity and I'm really interested in multiculturalism and uh, you know, finding out more about the white side of my family and the, the white history in my family. You know, it's just, it's opened me up to, to a whole new world of, of identity. Well, two things in the same kind of scene. One was there was a rally for the, the police, white police, and two black guys came up. And one of them was kind of starting to get a bit aggressive. And they said, who's in charge? And you said, we're a team. Oh, OK. Which I thought was a really cool thing, because often in these kind of things, it's, you know, you're the front of the, uh, the show. It's all about you. Same with the, you in the front of the book. But actually, that kind of element of being the team was, was really strong. And what I wondered is, do you have the same team that goes with you for every single film or do you get yeah. put with different people? Yes and no. It's, um, first of all, I'm really glad that you, you noticed that point because that is incredibly important to me because I know that I've got a hell of a lot to learn. I've made some really shit documentaries and I've made some good ones and I'm learning with every film and I'm not embarrassed by that because you know I'm new to it. I've only been making docs for five or six years but I've been in telly a lot longer. So I know that there is still room to grow in, 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 in that lane. And um, the team is something that does change, unfortunately, because of the quick turnaround. But given the way that things have gone and the success that we've had and the awards that we've won, it's now got to a point where they're like, all right, cool, you can take your time, you can have a bit more time to research, you can have a bit more time to shoot, and we're willing to wait until the people that you prefer are available. So now we've got an editor that I only, there's one editor that I want to work with who's really key to the end product. There is one director that I want to work with, two that I want to work with and bounce between, and two or three producers. And that's it. That's it. I think the, one of the things I enjoyed in the, uh, in the Chicago film was the kind of honesty that you have. There was a number of moments where you can tell that you're feeling a bit emotional. There's one where you, you say to the camera or to the guy behind it, can I take a moment? I know they're real, but those pieces of the camera, are they scripted in any way or is it just the kind of raw feeling that you're feeling? No, this Because they're incredibly, they're incredibly lucid. I think if oh, wow. I was in that situation, I'd be gibbering. Well, that's kind of what I'm wondering. I mean, do you yeah, no, they're not. The ones those? that you see are the ones that are lucid, the ones where there's that clarity of thought because sometimes you sort of, uh, I'll be asked a question and I'll, I'll answer it and it would just, I'll just stop myself and go, I'm rambling now, I'm sorry, and we'll, we'll go again. But um, to go back to your previous point about the wear a team thing, that really is, is key because I have a conversation with my director. So my director is a shooting director, so he's, he's operating the camera and he's asking me questions around the lens. So uh, if you watch any of the factual that, that I'm a part of, you'll see me talking off camera and that is me literally having a chat with the director and the dialogue that we have is what turns up some interesting stuff. And, you know, having a good director is having someone that will challenge you on your thought process and also ask you the right questions that can lead you down the path to say things that are pertinent to the subject at hand. And that is why the team element of it is incredibly important. Now, don't get me wrong, I, I understand the part that I play, but I also understand just how important it is to have someone who can not only ask the right questions, but also challenge you when you're chatting shit. Because sometimes you do, you know, if it's a long day or if you're adamant about something when it comes to a subject matter and you, you might be wrong. It's good to have someone who goes, really? 
And that's when you get the interesting stuff. This might be a daft question, but have you ever been afraid when you're filming? Either because you think this is, I don't know where I'm going and you know, I'm going to get into trouble, or physically afraid, because you do get into some hairy spots. For, for, for want of not sounding like macho man, um, I think afraid is the wrong word. I think intimidated is probably more apt, particularly in the jail episode. You know, you're checking into a jail and they're taking your shoes off and you're getting searched and you know, you're losing every item of clothing right down to your pants. It's intimidating, but I think that's good. I think it's important because you know, these aren't set up environments and those moments are what make the films strong because they are genuine and they are real. Dan, how did it feel to get your um, big... I'd, I'd never won anything either. I've been nominated a few times, probably not as many times as Reggie, and then always been disappointed and just sort of decided that I was never going to win anything. And the book got quite a few nominations, which was amazing in itself, and that felt like sort of, you know, validation in a way. Mm. The, I was really, really pleased to win one of them, which was the Gordon Byrne Prize, because Gordon Byrne was an author that I just admired hugely and have read. He wrote fiction and non-fiction. If anybody's not familiar with him, I urge you to read his books. He's, he sadly died about, uh, probably about six years ago now. And um, he was brilliant and a real sort of inspiration. I loved, loved his writing, fiction, non-fiction. Um, he wrote sport for Esquire. He wrote about art brilliantly, which is the world that, strangely enough, I now work in. He wrote very hard-hitting investigative stuff about true crime, about the Wests and also about Peter Sutcliffe that were just groundbreaking books. So wow. to, win, to win that prize was huge for me. And I think mm. it was probably you know, the proudest moment of my professional career. I won't deny it. And I was deeply, deeply thrilled um, to have won that. And it's something that I'll be proud of, I think, you know, for the rest of time. Reggie Yates and Dan Davies recorded live at The Blend in East London with Shivas Regal's Scotch Whiskey. We'll be back next week for another evening with two more of our leading cultural collaborators. Please subscribe on Apple Podcasts to automatically receive each episode. I've been your host, Theo van den Bruecke, and you've been listening to The Blend Sessions. Music